Good evening, and welcome to this week's broadcast of Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. We had our premiere broadcast about a month ago, and since then, we've been off and running. I'm Dustin Planot, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have, like our producer going out of town for a funeral and calling in from a cafe, which is why you heard what you just heard before. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show this evening with this week's special call-in guest, Stacy Stewart, President and CEO of the March of Dimes. And back with us in the studio is my friend and brother, Warren Stewart, host of The O-Factor. Hello, Warren. Hey, Dustin. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for having me on again, man. I'm really enjoying myself. Glad to have you along, Warren. As you know, we're broadcasting from the Alston Carlisle studio in Baltimore, Maryland. Before we talk to Stacy Stewart, I'd like to start off with a brief observation. It's something that came to me as I was looking through a collection of letters from my sister, Tennille. Tennille had an illness that ultimately killed her nearly five years ago. It was a severe drug addiction. Having such an addiction is not unusual for people who were subjected to childhood trauma. In fact, Tennille and I both encountered a consistent barrage of destructive and traumatic life experiences from our early childhood onward that left us with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's without question. Tennille went to a variety of rehab facilities to try to straighten out her life. She tried to get better. And even though she had her day-to-day struggles, for most of her life, she still managed to have hope. Here's a part of a letter that she wrote to me on August 16th, 2004. She was at the San Francisco location of Delancey Street, a well-regarded live-in rehab facility. This is from the beginning of the letter. Even though I'm getting old, there is still time to make a change in a life in which I really have a lot left to give. I plan on enrolling in a junior college and becoming an RN midwife. I know that it's going to be a test, yet that is what I want to do. I'm willing to go to any level to get to that dream. First of all, Tennille was 23 years old when she wrote this. Not really old. She died 10 years later. Now imagine Tennille's in the midst of a drug rehab program, and she's thinking about her long-term goal, taking care of babies, which she had developed when she was a mother to me. She wants to be a midwife. As it turned out, Tennille later went to a school to obtain a specialized healthcare skill. She became a dental assistant. At that time, she was also caring for two small children. She eventually had a third child. She didn't have the resources. 
The point is that Tania was fully aware of the importance of giving back and being a productive member of your community. What better way to do that than to help moms and babies navigate their way into their new lives? When you support the health and well-being of moms and babies, you are doing something that's vital for a vibrant and prosperous society. Okay, it's time to introduce our special guest. Stacy Stewart is the president and CEO of the March of Dimes, the leading organization to advocate for the health needs of moms and their babies. Stacy became affiliated with the March of Dimes in November 2016, after the organization's board of trustees approved her selection to become president. She then assumed the role of president on January 1st, 2017. Stacy is the fifth person to serve as president of the March of Dimes over the course of its 81-year history. She is also the first African-American woman to take that role. Prior to coming to the March of Dimes, Stacy was the U.S. president of United Way Worldwide. She provided strategic direction for more than 1,100 local United Ways. She also had been the chief diversity officer and senior president for the Office of Community and Charitable Giving at Fannie Mae, and she was president and CEO of Fannie Mae Foundation. Stacy earned an MBA with a focus on finance from the University of Michigan. She also had an undergraduate degree in economics from Georgetown University. Stacy is a native of Atlanta, Georgia. Please welcome Stacy Stewart to Life's Tough. Welcome, Stacy. Well, thanks, Dustin, and thanks for sharing that story about Janelle. That was pretty amazing. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, to start, Stacy, does the March of Dimes offer any resources to people, like my sister Janelle in 2004, who are interested in becoming midwives today? Well, that's a, it's a great question. In fact, one of the things that we have done for many, many years is offer a lot of professional education and training to nurses and to others um, in helping them to deal with the issues of premature birth uh, and and how to make sure that all moms and babies are healthier. Um, I, so that has actually been a big part of, of, of our work. Um, we uh, would love to make sure that there are more people who want to be involved in this, especially in their professional life. Uh, we want to make sure that we can cultivate that. Even, um, and your point around Tennille wanting to be a midwife, that certainly is an area that we are actually trying to become more involved in, and that is Wonderful. how do we actually encourage and find more payment opportunities for, for folks to become midwives and doulas. We think that's really important to deal with some of the maternal and infant health issues we experience today. Well, that's wonderful because I can tell you, uh, well, you don't know my whole story yet, and one day you're, you're going to hear uh, the rest of it. Uh, this was a young girl that her whole life, yeah. she wanted to help moms and babies. Wow. So this became personal, which was really one of the major reasons why I took on the, I don't know, the role of being a Sherpa in the region to, to help support the March of Dimes as a board member here in Maryland. Um, so, Stacey, that leads us to our next question. Well, uh, I'm going to throw it to, to Oren. Yes, uh, Stacy. during a re- recent interview, you said that while growing up in Atlanta, your family was focused on professional pursuits, but also focused on giving back to your community. Would you speak about this and how it took shape for your parents? Hello? Yes. Could you hear me? Did it go blank? 
Yeah, you just cut out. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no problem. No problem. I, I can re- took shape of my parents. Sorry about that. No, no, you're fine. Yeah, it's always fun it. doing phone interviews. That's okay. There's I always re- things we even do in here. Drop <laughs> bottles of water. and I can repeat the question again. <laughs> I was saying um, during a recent interview, you had said that while growing up in Atlanta, your yeah. family focused on professional pursuits, but also focused on giving back to right. the community. Um, can you speak about that a little bit about right. how it took shape, you know, for your parents? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Uh, and cut me off if I'm talking too much. No, please, <laughs> please go in. We, we want to hear your story. We do appreciate it. That I love to talk about. Take your time. So it's, it's actually, um, talking about this is actually one of the things that I think makes me coming to the March of Dimes, makes that, that whole story of me coming to the March of Dimes such an interesting story. So I, as you mentioned, I grew up in Atlanta. My father was a physician. My mom was a pharmacist. That's how they met, a physician and a pharmacist. That seemed to make sense. Um, but I, it, it, growing up, I grew up in a medical household. I mean, issues of medicine and health were a part of our daily conversation in our house, household. Um, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I worked in my dad's office. Um, in the summers and kind of did typical things that only a 13 and 14 year old kid can do. I, I went through old files and pulled out uh, files of patients that hadn't been there in years wow. uh, to put them mm. in storage. And it was one of the, and in going through those files this probably wouldn't be HIPAA compliant now. Yeah, this not allowed to do that. Stacey. We're going to turn you in. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, I know looking at different files, but, but invariably when I was looking at the dates, I would always see the diagnosis right next to the date. And my father, uh, whose patients were largely African-American, mostly African-American women, mostly on Medicaid and Medicare. Um, you, I cannot describe for you how often he would write anxiety next mm, wow. to the date. Now, he had a, a bunch of patients who were there to see him for obesity, for hypertension, for any range of other chronic challenges. But the number one thing that he wrote next to their on their charts of, in terms of what their the ultimate diagnosis or the most important thing that he needed to know, remember about them was their anxiety. Wow. Wow. A lot of people that came to see my dad. Yeah. It's so one of the things that we talk about now, even with maternal and infant health is the connection between stress and anxiety and the, the health outcomes for babies and how stress and anxiety experienced by mothers can impact their babies. I saw that issue of how stress and anxiety can impact our physical being when I was 14 years old working in my dad's office. Wow. Um, but my, my dad, yeah, it's really powerful. And so coming to the March of Dimes and like us now doing research at our prematurity research centers on stress and anxiety in, in, uh, in moms and the impact that has on babies is just really profound for me. But I think to your point, the, the, the thing that really I think my, my parents impressed upon me, my dad was the president of the Atlanta branch of the NAACP wow. in Atlanta during the 60s. I, I grew up with I the apologize. We didn't find children. That. We, we um, put that down too. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> well, he was very... He was a doctor, but he was also very, as a lot of professional people were, African-Americans during at the time were, you know, had their careers, but then they also were the doctors to those in the civil rights movement who needed medical care. They were the lawyers when they needed to get out of jail. The, the black lawyers, the black clergy, they all were the supporters that are often unrecognized of the civil rights movement. Um, we recognize the leaders, we see them, but we don't, we don't, often remember all the other helpers along the way. Well, my dad yeah. was one of those. And, 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 and I, what I took from that experience and then his activism, even after the civil rights movement, when, you know, he was the first African-American to be appointed to the, um, to MARTA, the, the initial board of MARTA, which is the, 
the um, public transportation system in Atlanta. Mm. Um, my mother running for office and serving on city council and then ultimately running for mayor of Atlanta in 1993 unsuccessfully wow. was their message to me and all of that was it was fine to have a professional career, but in whatever you do in your daily life, um, that you have to figure out a way to give back to your community. And that was something that I saw them. They never uh, sort of uttered that to me. They never said that to me directly, but in everything they did in terms of their life example, but that's what I took away from it, which is why my life and my career has followed, I think, yeah, the way it, that it It happened. sounds very much that they were, they were givers and not takers. Definitely. And, and you yeah. find that in life when you look back, the, the people that got you through most of the things when yeah. you weren't the best friend. Yes. Were those that give with no expectation? So and Seems I imagine like there, there are probably people no, you can remember. With no expectation. Yeah, that yes. probably took advantage of your parents, and, and it, your, your parents kept giving back, hey. even when. Yeah, they embodied it, definitely. Absolutely. So, yeah. so Stacey, uh, Absolutely. your association with the March of Dimes is the third time that you became the first African-American to head up a national organization. Do you think there's more yeah. a lack of diversity at the top among nonprofits compared to other types of organizations? Oh, there's... You know, it's a very good question. I don't know what the numbers actually show, but I but I have been pretty pretty uh, had a pretty loud voice in the past about the fact that in the nonprofit sector and in philanthropy in general, there is a there's a dearth of hmm. people of color in leadership positions. Um, and what's so ironic about that is that. Um, it is often uh, the mission of these organizations to serve the most disadvantaged communities. Often those are communities of color or lower income communities, often communities, you know, that we have come from, but we're not represented in leadership. So it always begs the question of how is the organization making decisions? It's not to say that just because of your color or your race or ethnicity, you are thereby qualified Correct. Um, to run or lead an organization. But when you don't have diversity of thought, of opinion, of background, of experience in these organizations that are, you know, presumably in place to actually serve some of these communities, it sort of begs the question about how effective it can that organization be. So, you know, when we say that we focus on health equity, I mean, I speak from a very personal place. Um, that my entire family's background and history was rooted in um, in health equity. My father helped to desegregate hospitals in Georgia. He worked with President Johnson and several other doctors from Georgia to document um, the segregation that continued even after the Civil Rights Act was passed and, and demanded that President Johnson um, use more federal influence to, to uh, encourage the integration of hospitals one of the major hospitals that got integrated as a result of those efforts was Grady Hospital. It's a major mm. public hospital. If you go to wow. Atlanta and you're on 7585 and downtown Atlanta, yes. you see Grady Hospital. Ironically, so Grady got desegregated because of my dad's efforts. Ironically, 30 years later, I ended up serving on the board of Grady. Wow. wow. And, and so um, tell and me, so, what did that feel like? That would, yeah. Oh, it was amazing. I would, I would still serve on the board of Grady today if I could, if I still lived in Atlanta. So do was, you remember? I, you know, I, I, Grady is yeah. the... To tell us that yeah. story. How did you, no, was, go ahead. was it an email? Was it when they said to you, Hey, look, we'd like for you to join the board. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting. Um, you know, we had a good friend, a woman that was a Fulton County commissioner. The board, uh, board positions were all appointed. 
um, by a, a county commissioner, the county, either Fulton or DeKalb County. And the, the board, uh, the county commissioners were looking for uh, someone with business experience because what they felt what the hospital needed, they had a bunch of doctors on the board. What they didn't have were a lot of people that understood how to run a hospital or the mm. business of healthcare yeah. or how to run a major, large, national, large, you know, regional complex organization like Grady, which is the largest public hospital in the Southeast. And um, I, here I was from Atlanta with my history and my, you know, my dad and my mom's history in Atlanta and Fulton County uh, with a business background and having majored in concentrating in finance, worked on Wall Street. So I was like a perfect fit, you know, wow. somebody who cared about the mission of Grady, but also you know, someone who had expertise in some of these issues. And so I ended up chairing the finance committee, wow, uh, wow. you know, when I was 30 years old for the, for the largest old. public hospital in the, in the Southeast. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. amazing that, right? that is so really amazing. Tell me about yeah. at that time. I imagine your, your dad, this must've been quite a moment. Oh, I think he, I mean, quietly, maybe he, <laughs> he must've cried about it. I mean, what an ironic, you know, it's yeah. the irony of it all. And just, how things come come about, you know, when you, it's like to your earlier point, like when you, I mean, he served and served and served, not even knowing what would happen down the road and yeah. how there would be such a bittersweet sort of, and just such a, a an incredible, you know, story to tell that even his family could continue that legacy, you I know, was, of uh, ensuring that every poor person, yeah, I mean, it was all, you know, the, the mission of Grady is all about making sure that everybody in Fulton and DeKalb County, and in fact, in the state of Georgia and regionally, has access to the best care possible right. and irrespective of their ability to pay. And that's really important even today. Well, what I've seen uh, with you with the March of Dimes is that you have empathy. And I've seen many leaders create followers, but not many leaders create leaders. Very and true. that is something that I've seen since you've taken on the role, is that you've stepped up. Uh, you, you've made a number of changes in the organization that were needed in, for long, long-term uh, stability and sustainability. Um, Very true. That comes with certain well, costs. Tell me about that. With great compassion, might I say. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's well. Thank, thank you for that. I mean, I think, I think when you do care about this work, you care enough to say, I have to make. If I have to make some tough choices that are going to benefit us in the long run, I'm going to have to do it. And. Um, you know, when you're a new leader, often you not only uh, feel a sense of urgency to address things, um, you know, pretty head on, mm -hmm. um, but you also are given, honestly, a little bit of latitude to make some changes. I, I'm really grateful for, like, local leaders like you, Dustin, and others that said, you know, let's give her a shot. Let's give her a chance. Let's yeah. see what she can do. I mean, I needed that kind of partnership because it certainly wasn't me alone. It was definitely me laying out a vision, but it certainly required a lot of us to pull together and, you know, and, and make sure that the organization could reposition itself for the long haul. And that's what we, that's what we definitely have tried to do. And I think, you know, we've hired an all new executive leadership uh, team. We've had to right size the organization so that we could put more money into our mission around research and advocacy. Um, and we're seeing great results for them. We still, yeah. you know, we still have a long way to go. It's not like anything you can flip a switch and everything's better overnight. But I do think that if we're going to maintain this position as the leading organization fighting for the health of all moms and babies, it requires that we be bold, be bold. and that we not be apologetic about what we've got to get done. So yeah. true. So true. And well, I, well said, Stacey. Very well said. I'll tell you a great segue to a question that I wanted to ask you about. What have been your prime points of focus at the March of Dimes since you've been the leader? You've definitely just spoke about it, but could you go in, go in a little bit uh, more 
for us to really and our listeners to really have a clear understanding. Yeah, you know, I'll, I I won't bore everybody with some of the more mundane details of you know how do you get an organization aligned and financially healthy and uh, all that good stuff. I mean, those the, those are just kind of the basics of blocking and tackling and running an organization. You know, good financial stewardship, um, sound financial positioning, all those things. Those were things. I mean, the organization was in a pretty good place, but we had a lot of room for improvement. Um, I think externally is where, you know, I get really more excited. I mean, obviously, uh, when you look at all the outcomes around moms and babies, there's no question that the U.S. is the most dangerous developed country uh, in the world in which to give birth. Yes. Um, when you look at the increasing rates of premature birth over the past three years, um, when you look at the doubling of maternal mortality rates over the past 25 years and where our rates of maternal death are rising when every other developed country's rates are declining. Um, Even the disparities that exist in infant mortality where we have not seen real progress um, for any kid, but we still see significant disparities in infant mortality and all these other areas as well. I mean, for us to to sort of be able to confront those hard truths um, and then try to rally people uh, around what we can do about it. I mean, I think that's been the biggest thing we've tried to do. We've got a prematurity collaborative of almost 400 organizations working together to deal with the issue of preterm birth. We've invested and opened a new prematurity research center uh, to wow. grow it to now a network of six research centers, five in the U.S. and one in the U.K. Wow, that's great. Um, we have poured a lot, a lot of effort into advocacy. We passed two major, we helped to pass, working with others, um, two big pieces of legislation around premature birth research and uh, also around preventing maternal deaths at the end of the year. Um, bipartisan, uh, there is bipartisan effort going on in Congress. I'll have to tell you, there, it's, not, it's not all broken. Yeah. Um, Republicans and Democrats came together and passed legislation, uh, uh, passed these two pieces of legislation that will go a long way to, you know, helping moms and babies be healthier. So, you know, and we've, and we've, we've been a part of helping to lead those things. So I think that's where, you know, expanding on that vision of how we can get measurable improvements that moms, you know, have comfort that when they decide to have a baby, they don't have to fear for their life or they don't have to fear that their child won't be born and be able to live to their fullest potential. Right. That's, that's the vision. That's That's the the aspiration that we want for every mom and baby. Right. Yeah. So, so true. Yeah. Coming up with the questions this week and putting thoughts into it, Stacey, I really looked at it as you took on a really hard role. And that is that while we look at moms and babies, most people Quite frankly, they're more desensitized to it. They're so true. they're more sensitive to veterans or, or cancer or some of the other big foundations that they put their time into. You know, when I look at our species, you know, mm-hmm. human beings, well, women are the most resilient of the species. Definitely, had they not have survived, well, yes. we wouldn't have been here. So, why have we gotten to a place from your? You've been doing this for for a while. Why have we gotten to this place yeah. in the world where there's just no more empathy? Yeah. And how do we find a way to bring that back? And I know you've got a, a challenge to, to find a way to, to capture the hearts. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what's interesting is I think one of the things that we are working hard to do a much better job of is telling the story, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and we've got to tell it as an organization. But one of the things that we're doing right now is encouraging all women to tell their stories and really all family members, um, husbands, spouses, partners, grandparents. You know, one of the things that happens when um, 
when a baby is, when the pregnancy doesn't go as planned or childbirth doesn't go as planned, um, when there's a loss or miscarriage, um, when there are difficulties and infertility challenges, women are very reluctant to talk about it. And it, often it's because women, we feel responsible. We feel like, well, something is wrong with us. There's something we did. We mu- it must be, we must be the problem. When in fact, it's, we are not the problem. I mean, we, women cannot be blamed for the issue of preterm birth. They can't be blamed for almost dying as a result of pregnancy and childbirth. Um, It's not to say that there are things that women can do to be more empowered with information, to better manage their health, all those things, of course. But when we have significant gaps around women that are not, you know, millions of women who are uninsured, 35% of all counties don't even have a hospital that offers obstetric services and no OBGYN and no certified nurse midwife. We can't blame women for that. That's a failure in our system. It's a failure in living up to our values. I believe, just like I mentioned earlier with the legislation that was passed, I know that whether you're Republican or Democrat or black or brown or or whatever background or zip code you come from, I don't know anybody that doesn't love babies. They don't. And if you love babies, you got to love the women that birth them. So true. Um, And... If, if we, if we, and I think, you know, I mean, it's, I've been often said a society is often measured by how we treat the poorest among us, the most vulnerable among us. How we treat babies today is a, is a barometer of where we are in our value system in this, in this country. So I think to your point, if we want to get back to living our values, then the first place to start is take care of the babies that are born and make sure they have a life that is, um, gets them off the best start possible, and do that by making sure that their mothers um, are protected, are safe, and, as, and are as healthy as possible. And I think that's got to be a big priority. I'm glad to see women having more power, more voice in society today, more women in Congress. All that is going to help um, to empower more women to make sure that their stories are told. This unspoken stories campaign that we have going on now to, for women to tell these stories is a platform to give women the sort of the safety net or the comfort to be able to tell their stories of pregnancy and childbirth using the hashtag unspoken stories so that more of these stories can be told and we can start to lift the veil yeah, we'll add that to the um, side and as well. lift a stigma if there's yes. any, yeah, about, about it all. So yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. Wow. Well, so is there anything in particular you think people don't know about the March of Dimes? Yeah. The history and the origin. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people that have been donors and supporters of March Times for years know us because of our time in polio um, and know us as, you know, one of the few, if only, uh, nonprofit organizations have taken on a major health issue and really solved it. You know, we have a lot of health um, issues that people are working on, um, but for many of them, we're still working on them, right? And it's, it, it does take a long time. Um, for a lot of younger generations, they don't know the March of Dimes. They don't know polio. I no. mean, it, it, but I can tell you one thing. If we don't keep our eye on, you know, making sure people get vaccines, we'll have a crisis on our hands the way the measles crisis is, uh, unfortunately appears to be kind of roaring back. Polio was a major health crisis, you know, in the 30s and that the 40s. And it had not been for the March of Dimes funding the research to discover the vaccine with Dr. Jonas Salk, we would be having more of a problem with polio even today, but we don't. It's eliminated from this country as a, as a major health concern. So if we can do that in for polio in the 30s, 40s, 50s, then hopefully we can do that for moms and babies, um, you know, in 2019 and beyond. 
Wow. Um, so the origin of March of Dimes goes back 81 years. Tell us, tell yeah. us what happened in the beginning. How did this all start? Well, um, it was 1938. Um, you know, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, suffered from polio. Uh, while polio mainly affected uh, children, young children, at the time, people really weren't clear on how you got polio. It wasn't clear if you went to the pool, would you get it? Or, you know, it wasn't, you know, was it, um, it wasn't clear how, how anyone got contracted the, the virus. But literally tens and tens of thousands of people started to be affected by polio. And President Roosevelt, because as even as an adult was affected, he took it upon himself to, like, really rally the whole country around this cause. He asked people to send dimes into the White House, um, dimes that would then uh, be invested in breakthrough research uh, at, at various institutions with some of the smartest minds in medicine. Uh, Dr. Jonas Salk ended up being um, the the scientist who finally discovered the the, the vaccine, and um, and there were clinical trials, you know, fairly soon after the discovery of the vaccine um, that went in, that you know that went well, and it eventually got into everyone in the country became vaccinated. Um, you know, from there, the March Dimes moved to other issues around moms and babies. So from women that are pregnant, if you know to take folic acid, you can thank the March of Dimes for that wow. because we helped to do a lot of the work to make sure that moms do uh, know about the, the, um, the benefit of taking folic acid to prevent things like spina bifida and other kinds of birth defects. Um, it, for a lot of ba- when you have a baby and the baby gets a little prick on the on the heel, yes, uh, and gets tested for any number of um, illnesses, that comes because of our push at the March of Dimes for newborn screening. Um, we have just done an enormous amount of research and work across the decades, um, even after polio, uh, to improve outcomes for moms and babies, and of course preterm birth. Uh, became our big focus because premature birth is the leading cause of death. Premature birth and all the consequences and complications that come from premature birth is the leading cause of death for children between the ages of zero and five. Uh, and and a lot of people don't realize that. Um, so there's a lot of focus on other children, health challenges like cancer and others, which are terrible. And and we all and we need to all focus on these issues. I think a lot of people, to your earlier point, don't even know that there are 400,000 babies that are born each year in the U.S. alone, 15 million globally, that are born too sick or too soon. And 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 those babies often experience lifelong health challenges, developmental delays, yes, um, uh, cerebral palsy, all kinds of vision problems, a, a whole range of health challenges. So this and all the other challenges around moms and babies are our major focus. And yeah. that's, that's how we've evolved over 81 years. Wow. And that information definitely has to get out more, you know, so like you said, more people can become educated overall throughout the world. It's a great point. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. Stacey, this is a question yeah, that's no, come absolutely. in from Nate Andrew out of Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Nate says, there's a lot of competition out there for charitable giving. What are you doing at the March of Dimes to put a spotlight on the issue of premature birth and birth defects? And how can you make this appeal to millennials? So the question's really geared towards millennials, a generation that is keenly aware of making a social impact on the world. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question. Well, one of the things that um, that we're doing is... Um, uh, is making sure that a lot of this information is out on social media, like these campaigns like hashtag unspoken stories, 
really allows women, even younger women, um, who, who might just be starting a family, um, be a part of this conversation of improving health outcomes. You know, I would say that um, some of these issues around maternal mortality and the women that, you know, experience health challenges and, um, and, and in fact, unfortunately, die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth has really hit a lot of the millennial um, uh, millennials really hard because a lot of them, you know, are not, uh, maybe not, maybe they're not ready to have babies, you know, in the next, you know, year or two, but some of them are, some of them are beginning to have children. They are beginning to start families and, and it sort of hits home for them. And so some of them see this as not only just a challenge for those moms, but they see it as a broader social justice issue because, you know, black women, for example, are three to four times more likely to die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth. And then from a social justice standpoint, um, it, it, that really hits folks, you know, in a, it's like a punch in the stomach. And, and why is our, why does it appear our systems are so unfair? March for Babies is a great way to get involved for young people. It's a walk. You can come out with your friends. Um, you know, we encourage a lot of sharing on, on, on social media. Facebook fundraising has been a huge part of of how we've supported the organization. I think, you know, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of millennials, and when you think about 400,000 babies are, are born every year prematurely, that means there are a lot of people um, of every age who probably had know someone that was a preemie baby or have a sibling that was, Definitely. or maybe they are. So, you know, this is something that can be very personal for all of us. Um, and I think for young people, who think about issues around climate change, who think about the future, what we're doing is investing in our future, you know, our future health. We're investing in the next generation. Mm -hmm. And we need to be, I'm 55 years old. I, I hope millennials will see this issue as something that is vitally important for the health of our country and for our, our globe. Um, because if people aren't born healthy, then, you know, we, that means they're not able to live up to their fullest potential. We're not able to produce the best scientists. We're not able to produce the best leaders. Um, and, and the, you know, the best in every field, if we don't solve these health issues, then, I mean, what are you, if you don't have your health, right? Right. Yeah, um, and that point. starts from the very beginning of life. So, yeah. Yeah. so, so, so also, I, I hope this isn't a, an issue that appeals to them yeah, <laughs> for sure. No, it, it, it does. It should. And, yes. and so that also leads me into running the March of Dimes from a logistic standpoint. Now I have never run the March of Dimes, <laughs> but I have to imagine it keeps you up. Uh, and you, because you, you can't put yourself everywhere. Tell me about your team. Tell me about how and who runs the March of Dimes. Oh, wow. Well, the the great thing is that I, I think I mentioned earlier, we've, we've got brought in a whole new um, executive leadership team that I'm just super excited about, a new chief scientific officer who is a reprodu reproductive endocrinologist and OBGYN who's an amazing nationally, internationally recognized scientists. We've got a chief medical and health officer um, wow. who was the Love former state health commissioner of West Virginia. Yes. And he's a national leader. He's he's a recognized leader in the opioid crisis. And he's helping us to build a whole focus around the babies that are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, wow, that's awesome. uh, born to mothers who've, who've been exposed to opioids. Um, we've got a fantastic, um, just a fantastic team of people who have come on board um, with all kinds of different backgrounds and experiences. And I'm super excited about it. We've, we've also built, you know, I think we're building a very diverse team. Um, um, and um, for the first time hired a new chief diversity officer for the organization. We wow. never had that before. And so there's all kinds of, um, and then I think, I think that's staff leadership, but I think as you, 
you know, Dustin, what, what I think drives this organization is the volunteer leadership at the local level, at our national board and also Absolutely. at the local level. It's the volunteers, the people who have been personally impacted, who care about this work, um, who really make this organization run. And I'm just entirely grateful for, you know, everything that they do every day, folks like you and others, many thousands of others. Wow. So true. Yeah. So true. And, and we go, I mean, when we go to the events and we get together, uh, I, I typically cry most meetings. There's so many stories, yeah. stories that make you laugh and yeah. stories that make you cry. I, this is me to you. I can't imagine because I, I know it must be a very large number. How many stories, how many painful stories, how many happy stories. Tell me about how that impacts. That's going to leave something. This is different than what you've done before yet. And it's a new journey for you. Yeah, these stories, you know, again, the hashtag unspoken stories, that's exactly, the storytelling is so powerful. Um, What you need to do is listen to, in fact, there's a story that I just put on my Instagram, on IGTV, that I'd love for people to hear. Uh, It's a seven-minute story of a woman who has a baby that was born uh, with a couple of genetic difficulties and a baby with two different genetic um, challenges, uh, resulting in the baby's, um, dwarfism condition. She's, um, she suffered, she'll suffer for the remaining part of her life, um, from dwarfism and all kinds of health challenges as a result of that. She's 18 months old. She just had open heart surgery in Delaware, um, this past week. Um, I, you know, I don't care if you're 20 years old, 15 years old, 70 years old, if you could put your place, if put yourself in the place of a mom or a dad with an 18 year old baby having to go into open heart surgery, I mean, it shatters your world. That's heavy. And, and that's, that's only one part of her journey. She's had a number of complications, had a number of surgeries. I mean, this is what keeps me going because I, I was fortunate and blessed to have two healthy pregnancies. Uh, some of that was because I did go to prenatal visits. I did what I was supposed to do. The rest of it was out of my hands, right? So true. Some of it was beyond my control. Um, so how do we help, how do we help them to make sure that we can create better outcomes and better chances for all moms and babies so that they don't have to all go through, you know, what, what Nia, little 18 month old Nia is having to go through and her Mm. mother, Erica, right? I mean, and her dad. Um, so I think that's, that's where, um, you know, I love the question from the millennial, but I, I think you got to listen to these stories. You got, if you, I think they, I think millennials are very caring. They're concerned. They are more service oriented. They, they care more about their communities than any of us ever did. Right. And very I think hands-on. if we just make, tell these stories more broadly, it yeah. will help to compel people to want to get involved. Right. Make it very, it's very personal. Yes. Great point. Very personal. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Good. Uh, one question for you. How does a young person aspire to be a, CEO in March of Dimes. Like well, if they wanted gosh, to do what you that's do. That's a good question. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me let me give some hope to some younger people. Yes, indeed. Please do. We Sometimes need you to. I think when younger people, <laughs> we like it. And maybe some not so young people. How about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. that? Some thirty-year-olds I, I, I know out there. And I was going to say, and I'm glad Dustin said that because you, you never know. Some people, as we you know, as we age, we still have hopes and dreams. We, of we all aspiring. need wisdom from a Stacey Stewart. That yes, is indeed. the CEO. You should never give up. Never give up. You should never give up on your hopes and dreams. So never, true. never. So listen, I I know how I was when I was younger, right? I'd look at somebody in some really lofty position, and I think, 
oh my gosh, how did they ever do that? You have to, they must have been a perfect student. They must have done everything perfectly. They must have never failed. And while I know there are a lot of people out there like that, you know, they were, you know, I, I never really liked those people, but that's three of us. Yeah. Um, let me, let me assure everyone that I was not that kid, right? <laughs> I was an average student. I was average to a little, maybe a little better than average. Uh, but I wasn't, I, I didn't stand out in the class. I didn't talk that much. I was pretty quiet, pretty shy. Uh, when I was in high school, when I went to college, you yeah, know, about the same. Yeah, I did, I did pretty well, but not, you know, I wasn't like straight A, wasn't like beans list, nothing, none of that. I went to, I went to business school and something clicked in me and I have really don't know how or why, but, um, I went to business school at Michigan and it today is my favorite school it allowed me to have so many different opportunities to feel accepted on the campus, to feel valued and feel like I was as important as anyone else on the campus. And up until that time, every other school I'd gone to, I hadn't felt that. Um, I ran for the president of the Black Business Students Association. At the time, it was the largest student student organization on the entire campus of the University of Michigan because it included both undergrad and graduate students. Somehow, I decided I was going to run for president, and I won. What, did, did that and surprise you? from that you? moment on, <laughs> it surprised, it shocked me. Yeah. I didn't think I had it in me and didn't even know what I was doing, but I wow. did it. Remarkable. And and I did it because I just thought, well, what the heck? What do I have to lose, right? Yeah, very true. And, um, but it taught, me, it taught me something about the fact that I could be a leader and that I liked being a leader and that I was pretty good at being a leader. And I never lost sight of that. Now, fast forward, I went to Fannie Mae and uh, I had a, I felt very, int- I had worked on Wall Street um, before I went to Fannie Mae in Atlanta. Um, I worked in New York and moved back to Atlanta to be closer to home. And I worked for Fannie Mae and I worked an African-American woman, the youngest in leadership in that office. And, uh, uh, and there were, there was a guy who was a white man who hired me and, um, I wouldn't speak in meetings and he pulled me into his office because I was sort of intimidated. I don't know. I just, it didn't, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel like, was it really this, a good space for me? And he said, look, Stacy, I hired you cause you're really smart and you have really good ideas. And when you're in these meetings, I need you to really sp- speak up and speak out. And, um, you know, otherwise I wouldn't have hired you if I didn't believe you could do it. And something about him saying that to me was enough for me to get to a place of saying, you know what, I do have a voice and I am smart and I am important and I deserve it. Yeah. And I deserve to be here. And from there, I told people like, now you can't shut me up (laughs) because now I talk too much. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I I like refer to it as you, you use it as your fuel to drive you. So true. Most people try to find a way to focus. You go, that fuel was how I focused. Exactly. Yeah. That the excitement of it going, you're telling me if I run and if I give, we, we say on the show that all it takes is all you got. Yeah. And you'll always find a minute yeah. in your day. My, my, my uncle, Dr. Planet, always says, yes. hey, Dust, I've never, I've never not found a minute in the day to do the things I really want to do. So true. So uh, important to know. Yeah. yeah. So That's exactly so right. So how did you, outside of the, there are many distractions. How do you stay focused? Well, you know, I have two kids. They're 16 and 14. I have a busy job. I've got a bunch of other things going on in my life. Um, you know, I try to eliminate a lot of things that are not aligned with any of those priorities. If it's not about my job, you know, whatever kind of 
outside interests I have and my kids, then I, I just make a decision. I, I, don't have, I have no time for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I try to make time, personal time, to just relax, have fun, go for a walk, exercise. Um, but, you know, I think it's being kind of disciplined to stay focused on what are the most important priorities. I find a lot of people tend to get really distracted and a lot of things are going on. I mean, when the news is too much, I turn it off. You know, I mean, it just, at some point you just have to kind of decide what you want to get done and be very focused on that. Um, at the March of Dimes, there's so much to do and I can't do everything. So for me, it's, you know, just get focused on the top two or three things that we got to get done and try to focus on that. Um, I, I think it makes life, and, and that, that's easier said than done. And, and listen, my team's listening to this thing. Yeah, well, why do I? Have, why are we focusing yeah. on ten things <laughs> yeah, right now, right? Because yeah. um, it's it's really hard to get down to the top two or three. But I do sure. think that we've been able to really focus on getting clear on our mission, getting clear on the health of the organization internally, um, and really making sure that um, we are growing the future of this organization for the next ten years. Those things are, and and creating those building blocks in terms of how we need to operate and how we need to look. Those things are the things that I think about mostly. And then the rest of it, I just have to kind of let it go. It does also help, I will say, to have a really supportive spouse and a partner because I don't think anybody goes through life on their own and everybody needs help. Yeah. And I have a great team at the March Dimes and a great family that helps me a lot. And wow. um, and frankly, that's 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 90% of it. Right that there. is true. Well, look, I, that led it's into, all the other oh, I was, that me. I was yeah, agree. writing a note to myself saying, how do you find the balance? Yeah. Uh, I'm a dad. I got an eight year old and five year old and, and a busy schedule. How do you do it? You're the CEO of a company where by the way, expectations are always unrealistic on you. Everybody. Well, I could do it Absolutely. better. It's the, the person that has the weight of the crown. It's always the heaviest. Yes, indeed. So how do you find that balance? I mean, there yeah. are people that would say you do things right and do things wrong. And as I always tell my my spouse reminded me this, I get the best of you and I get the worst of you. And so when you're at, when you're around your oh, colleagues all day, they get the best of you, they get the worst of you. How do you find the balance at home? Because you're just a person. Yeah. Still a human at the end of the day. So yeah, true. that, that is so true. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I've heard this, you know, I've been, I listen to all these people talk about work-life balance and you know, then Michelle Obama says, you know, you can have, you can have it all, you just can't have it all at the same time or something, or she said that or someone yeah, said that. Yeah. I think that's kind of true. Um, you know, I think, um, uh, and then I, it's funny, I was listening to Bishop T.D. Jakes today and he talked about the fact that you have all these things and if you focus on one thing, you're probably, one day, you're probably going to lose focus on something else. But the idea isn't to have maintained perfect focus on everything at the same time um, or to maintain this kind of perfect balance at the same time. It's focus on what's needed in the moment and then pick up on the other things that then need your focus, you know, like the next day. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. like the next interval of time. In other words, try to give consistent focus to, to the things that are really important to you. Forget the things that are not important. You got to take those out. Yeah, but the things that are really important to you, prioritize. Yes. prioritize, yeah. prioritize it. Like uh, you know, like for example, this week, I spent a, you know some time making sure that I could make it to my daughter's lacrosse games because next week I'm I'm going to be out a lot and I'm not going to get to see very many. Yes. but as long as I'm at as many of them as as long as she sees me making an effort to come to 
as many of them as I can. That's true. She's not feeling like I'm not also my mom. She knows I'm super busy, but she know but she knows that my priority above all is to be her mother. To be her mother first. And to yes. support her in all of yeah. her efforts too. Yeah. So it just you know, it's just trying to be present in the moment with the things that you gotta focus on right then and there. Perfect. And two more questions for you, Stacy. Uh, you mentioned uh, T.D. Jakes, uh, another friend of mine, somebody who had been on the show a couple weeks back, also from Atlanta, Vander Holyfield, said that his faith gets mm-hmm. him through it. Um, you talked about T.D. Jakes. I get uh, messages that Vander texts me a message from T.D. Jakes. Uh, he, he inspires in his faith. Well, it sounds like it's aligned with yours. Yeah, well, I think um, having a having a deep faith is kind of the thing that sustains you. You know, I think even when you have tough times, which I do, um, you know, I try to let those things get me down too much. Uh, I tell my kids this all the time. It's like, you know, it's like the whole thing about don't let the highs get too high and the lows get too low. I mean, just staying really even. There's a really funny meme going on right now on social media. Um, the player from Portland that hit the 40-foot shot last yes. night. Yeah. Yes. Damian Lillard, yes. And there's a funny meme of everybody going completely berserk around him, and yes. his face is just totally calm. So true. And it and it's sort of that. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, the, the way that he managed to make that shot yes. was by not getting too freaked out when things were not going well and not overexerting himself on things, just kind of staying even so that in the – so when that buzzer-beater moment comes, he can just – stay really calm um and uh and it's every everything about that picture says everything about that and i think that was a good that's a good life lesson they say when preparation meets opportunity it's no such thing as luck you know it's 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 being prepared for the moment and that was you're right that was definitely a a moment in time yeah yeah so stacy last question it's like tiger woods like tiger definitely like tiger woods masters after after 11 years i can't imagine that feeling going are you guys kidding me right now i just won I've dreamt about this day. <laughs> exactly. All remain, right. Remain so here is the shock question of the evening. The one's going to catch you completely off guard. Uh, you just said tough times. Who were your tough people? Who are my tough people? Yeah. Um, Who are the people that helped get you through it? Well, let me tell you. Yeah. Well, I don't really talk about this a lot, but um, my sister, uh, I have three sisters. My, my next oldest sister is, uh, uh, Stephanie Davis, she's a judge in Atlanta. Uh, she has been a judge for a number of years. She's um, She went to Stanford undergrad. She had a terrible car accident. Um, hmm. She graduated from Stanford in May of 1980 and had a very terrible car accident in September of 1980 that left her as a quadriplegic. Um, she stayed in the hospital um, in uh in ICU and in rehab for months. Um, this was my, almost my entire senior year in high school. Wow. And my, my mother was there with her and, uh, my dad for a good chunk of the time. Um, when she came back, she, within that year, took the LSAT, went to law school at Emory law school. Um, she clerked for different judges. She became a judge herself. Um, she is, oh, she's amazing. Right. She is amazing. And if you Sounds need remarkable. her, she's funny. She's funny. She's warm. She's like a total star in Atlanta. I mean, people know her. They see her in a wheelchair, getting on MARTA, riding to and from work, and, you know, doing all the things in life, going to Falcons games, all those things. 
you know, she's somebody who, um, you know, for, for a lot of my college life, I needed, I kind of stepped back and made sure my parents could give her all the attention, but because she deserved it and needed it. But I think she was, she's someone that kind of stands out as like, I'm sorry, do not complain in your life about whatever's going on. It's just somebody who's persevered through enormous challenges and all kinds of battles and health battles since that time. And, and she's strong and, uh, she's, she's, she's my hero. Wow. Well, wow. we, we were going to end it with life's tough, but Stacy Stewart's sister is tougher. tougher. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's not, exactly right. Yeah, so yeah, true. That's, the, yes. that's appreciate you sharing uh, that final words uh, to our audience around the world and to your team throughout the States. Well, just keep up the great work, everybody. Let's stay focused on, you know, this priority of making sure our babies are healthy. Um, you know, what else do we have to care about in life than making sure that the babies get the best shot in life and making sure their moms are healthy too. Like this is, this is a critical part of our value system and who we are. And, um, and we don't want to leave any baby behind. So uh, we want to make sure we all Come together for March for Babies in Baltimore and everywhere around the country. Um, more information at marchforbabies.org. Share your stories on hashtag unspoken stories. If you've had a difficulty with pregnancy or childbirth or a loss or miscarriage, we want to hear your story. And we want you to be part of a community that will give you support and that um, will support you as well. Uh, but thank you for this time. And Dustin, thank you for your leadership. Thank both of you all for, for the time. It's been amazing. Thank you as well. Thank you, uh, Stacy and... From the Life Stuff's audience, thank you from around the world. We do. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. Wow. Warren. That was amazing. Wow. That was a story. That was a story. And everyone has one, but that was a story. Yes, indeed. We all have one, but we really appreciate Stacey Stewart for sharing hers today. Yeah, and her sister. Her what sister. Are- she started with her parents. You know, I, I just was in awe. You know, it, it's the, the lineage is amazing. It, it reminds me of this moment we all get to when we allow ourselves to be a volunteer victim. So true. And all we have to do is look around us and hear a story that says, stop feeling bad for yourself. Cause exactly. I don't. Exactly. Once again, now, as we close in the evening, I'd like to thank the POI Institute for being a life's tough sponsor. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically-focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. Or check out their website, POIibogaine.com. That's P-O-I-I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com. Be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. It's been wonderful to have you on air with us, Stacy. The March of Dimes has been a great organization for a long time. We are so thankful for everything you've done and everything the team around the country has done yes. to support the mission, the mission you've now been charged with. So in closing, that wraps up our show for this evening. I'd like to thank again Stacy Stewart for sharing her story about herself and about the path that took her to become the CEO of an organization that supports moms and babies. The one mission, the one journey that Tennille never got to see. Also, thank you, Oren, for being part of this podcast. Any thoughts that you have about our conversation for the past hour? 
I tell you, I do have one, Dustin. Um, stewardship is what comes to mind, you know, service, volunteering yourself, sharing your story, letting people know that you care by your actions. So that's something that definitely Stacey Stewart let us know that it's important for us all to join in. Fantastic. I'd also like to thank Melinda Davis, executive producer at Up To Me Radio, for giving the Life's Tough community an opportunity to share our life stories with you, our amazing audience. Also, special thanks to my dear friend, Gerald Levin, Life's Tough's chief writer and my Sherpa. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. From Atlanta to Baltimore to Beijing to Hong Kong to Los Angeles. And each time I hear someone's personal account, I do not frame it as something that was more horrible than my own story or something that was not as bad as what I went through. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. To the person who lived it, that story is just as devastating as any other. I ask you to use your story to give others hope, as Stacy has done. It's quite liberating to move beyond your past. Don't keep your story to yourself and allow it to eat away at you. Instead, consider how your experience can benefit somebody else. Your story may be just what it takes to help someone in your circle or in our community to get through a tipping point moment, an instance when that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to transcend a particular situation. Please subscribe to our show. Visit lifestough.com, L-I-F-E-S-T-O-U-G-H.com, and be sure to join us every week Same time, same place, for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. Remember, everyone has a story. Life's tough, you can be tougher. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Next week on May 1st, we'll broadcast a lively conversation with Sergeant Rudy Reyes. Rudy, a Marine veteran, was a member of the Elite Recon Force Unit, which led the way during the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. He's an actor himself, a career that started when he played himself in Generation Kill, the 2008 HBO miniseries about the invasion. So for Oren Stewart and the entire Life's Tough team, this is Dustin Planelt signing off. Remember, life's tough, you can be tougher. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. <laughs>